Hi, I'm John Donvan, host and moderator of Intelligence Squared U.S. Debates, and it is Halloween, the playful children's holiday of ghoulish costumes and sacks and sacks and sacks of candy. But Halloween's ancient origins actually reveal a much deeper and much more meaningful annual ritual. It marked a transition, actually two kinds. First, it was the changing of the seasons from summer's harvest to winter's darkness. It was also the time of year when it was believed that ancestral spirits traveled to other realms. These transformative analogies underscore the reflection that is inherent in the holiday's true nature as a meditation on death. But is death final? Well, back in May of 2014, we challenged four debaters to discuss their ideas about the finality of death. The motion being debated that night was, death is not final. Arguing for that motion, Dr. Eben Alexander. He's a neurosurgeon and author of Proof of Heaven. His debate partner, psychologist, medical doctor, and author, Raymond Moody. Arguing against them, physicist and author, Sean Carroll, and his partner, Dr. Stephen Novella, an academic neurologist at Yale School of Medicine. Dr. Eben Alexander opens the debate by discussing his own near-death experience. Thank you very much. Um, I've been an academic neurosurgeon for over 20 years, and I fully believed in reductive materialism, our modern conventional science. In fact, six years ago, I would have been sitting over on that side of the stage. Now, at that time, I believed that the brain creates mind and consciousness, that we have no free will, it's birth to death, and nothing more. Then something happened. In November 2008, I was driven rapidly into coma due to a severe bacterial meningoencephalitis, which I much later came to realize is the perfect model for human death. Destruction of the neocortex, the outer surface, the human part of the brain. Sadly, almost no one returns, much less recovers, from a case of meningitis as severe as mine. The last evidence of any activity in my neocortex was in the first hour or so in the emergency room, and afterwards I demonstrated only very pathological reflexes, including severe brainstem damage. Mine was an absolutely lethal meningitis. None of the consultants in my case from Harvard, UVA, Duke, or Wake Forest had ever seen that severe a case. The scan showed diffuse destruction of my neocortex with blurring of the gray-white junction over all eight lobes of my brain. No area was spared. Later in the week, off all sedation, my neurological activity was almost nil. On day seven, with no residual neocortical function, my doctors recommended, uh, because I was down to a 2% chance of survival by that point, with a best-case scenario, that if I survived, I'd spend a month or two in hospital, be transferred to a nursing home, and die in a coma months later. Hence, they recommended just stopping the antibiotics. My journey deep in the coma began in a very primitive, unresponsive realm, which I later called the earthworm's eye view. The best consciousness my brain could muster, soaking in pus. My prior neuroscientific view would have dictated that the next step would be one of no awareness at all. Yet it was just the opposite, like the blinders coming off. I ascended into far more crisp, vibrant, ultra-real realms of pure joy, love, and understanding, far too rich and complex to fully describe. Soon thereafter, I started to return to this world. Words came back to me over hours and days, childhood memories over weeks, and knowledge of brain, mind, consciousness of more than 20 years' experience in neurosurgery came back over two months. My doctors have no explanation at all for my full recovery. I knew I'd experienced something. 
Early on, I tried to explain all of this as a brain-based phenomenon based on my old paradigm, writing it up as a report for the neuroscience literature. Over those weeks of recording my experience after coma, I also began to talk with my doctors and review my medical records, especially neurological examinations and the scans, and came to realize just how deathly ill I was and how there was no way that such an ultra-real, crisp and vibrant experience could have happened in my physical brain. Initially, I was very worried that the memories would fade. Those memories are as sharp today as when they happen. I had never read the NDE literature before and was shocked to find that the experience seemed hyper-real in over half of NDE accounts, and the memories do not fade like those of hallucinations, dreams, confabulations, or drug effects. Evan Alexander, I'm sorry, and thank you very much. Your time is up. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Evan Alexander. Our motion is death is not final, and here to speak... Against this motion, Sean Carroll. He is a physicist at the California Institute of Technology. He is the author of several books, including The Particle at the End of the Universe. Ladies and gentlemen, Sean Carroll. Thanks, John. It's a pleasure to be here defending such a cheerful and uplifting proposition as death is, in fact, final. Fortunately, we can open Dr. Alexander's book. It begins with a quote from Albert Einstein. Einstein says, a man should look for what is, not for what he thinks should be. To which I would like to reply, exactly. (laughs) We human beings are not always perfectly rational. Let me tell this shocking news to you. We are bundles of cognitive biases, and one of the strongest biases we have is that we go easy on propositions that we would like to be true. What we should, in fact, do is go especially skeptical on propositions that we would like to be true. And even I want it to be true that death is not final. But we should hold something like that to an extraordinarily high standard of evidence. So what are we actually being asked to accept? What should we expect the world to be like if death were not actually final? For one thing, I would expect that the existence of souls persisting in the afterlife should be perfectly obvious. But in fact, it seems that the souls persisting in the afterlife are kind of shy. I would expect also that when people did have near-death experiences and really talk to other souls in the afterlife, that they would come back with consistent, interesting, non-trivial stories to tell. But in fact, when Christians have near-death experiences, they often say they've met Jesus. When Hindus have near-death experiences, they meet Hindu deities. The story that we're told of life after death doesn't really hang together. What we have are personal testimonies, like that from Dr. Alexander. So people say with very sincere voices that what they experienced was totally real. And I have no doubt in the sincerity of this testimony. What I'm asking is, is it possible that our brain is telling us that something was real, but that thing does not actually correspond to something that really happened? So what is going on? We had this informal idea that there is a soul that sort of is a blob of spirit energy that takes up residence near the brain and drives us around like a soccer mom driving an SUV. (laughs) But we've known for a long time that this picture doesn't make sense. We can literally see memories being formed. We can see the chemical changes in neurons. We know that brains often have false memories in them. We even know the laws of physics by which the atoms, the electrons, the elementary particles in our brains behave. And there's no ambiguity in these equations. They could always be wrong. It's always possible to say, well, we just don't know what is going on. 
that's fine. But what we have is the evidence of every experiment ever done telling us that these equations are correct. To overcome that, we would need very, very strong evidence. Just one experiment telling us how the soul is pushing around the chemicals in our brain. But we don't have that. What science says is that life or consciousness is not a substance like water or air. It is a process like fire. When you put out the flame on a candle, the flame doesn't go anywhere. It simply stops. And here's where we are. We are halfway through the opening round of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate where our motion is death is not final. We have two debaters, two against two, arguing for and against this motion. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have heard from the first two debaters and now on to the third. Here to argue for the motion, death is not final, Raymond Moody. He's a medical doctor with a Ph.D. in philosophy, the author of numerous books on near-death experience, including the seminal Life After Life. Raymond Moody. Thank you. Um, since 1965, I've had the honor of interviewing thousands of people from all over the world who had near-death experiences. And my assessment from 40-something years of working on this, and I will underline that word assessment, is there is a life after death. However, I want to say, anybody who tells you in the year 2014 that that is a scientific matter is not thinking clearly. In 2014, the question of life after death is not yet a scientific question. That is that reason is a much bigger category than science. Scientific method is about, say, 400 years old. Reason itself is about 2,300 years old, a much bigger uh, institution that includes history and philosophy and literary theory and the law in addition to scientific thinking. Since Democritus and Plato fought this out 2,300 years ago, the way we've debated this is we say that some people look at these near-death experiences and they, they take it at face value, as Plato did, and they say, well, this is an indicator of an afterlife. Other people... Democritus being an example, said, as Democritus famously did, there is no such thing as a moment of death, implying that, therefore, that what he's getting at is that these near-death experiences are just the patient's perception of the winding down process of the body. The trouble with this whole debate is that that format of debate itself is incoherent. Let me give you an indication of why. All of the elements that we think of as a near-death experience, getting out of the body, um, going into this light, seeing a panoramic review of one's life, seeing apparitions of the deceased, occur not just to people who almost die and are brought back, but rather to the uh, healthy and uninjured bystanders at the bedside of someone else. So my question is, if the causation of these near-death experiences is the uh, physiological distress and the uh, events going on in the brain, why should the bystanders, who are not ill or injured, have identically the same experience? So I think that we're into a situation with this now where really the problem has sort of outgrown grown the format that we use to debate about it. 
In my opinion, we really are on the verge of breakthroughs in the genuine, rational investigation of the question of life after death. But it's not going to come initially from science, but initially from the realms of logic and critical thinking. So thank you very much. Thank you, Raymond Moody. And our motion is death is not final. And here is our final debater against this motion, Stephen Novella. He is an academic clinical neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine, as well as the host of the weekly science podcast, The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Ladies and gentlemen, Stephen Novella. So I'm going to convince you that you need to vote against this proposition because if you vote for the notion that death is not final, then you, that by necessity means that you're voting against the conclusion, the scientific position, that the mind is what the brain does. The mind is a process of the brain itself. Well, how sure are we, how confident are we in, as a scientific conclusion, which is what we're here to talk about, that the mind is essentially the brain? Well, we're very, we're very certain about that. We're as confident of that as we are of anything in science. Everything that you think, feel, believe, is something that's happening inside the brain demonstrably. But let's take that as a scientific hypothesis. If the arrow of causation is going from brain to mind, then if we change the brain, that should change the mind. And if we damage the brain, that should damage the mind. And if we turn off the brain, that should turn off the mind. Well, if all of those uh, propositions are correct, that strongly supports the notion that the mind is essentially the brain. And that is, in fact, exactly what scientists have discovered over and over again over the last one to two centuries of neuroscience. And there's endless examples of this. There's no limit. There is no practical or functional limit that neuroscientists have encountered so far to the degree to which we can mess with your mind by messing with your brain. Your, uh, your sense that you're in your body, that you control your body, that you're separate from the universe, basic fundamental things about your concept of yourself and your experience of reality are all things demonstrably happening in the brain, and we could turn it off like a switch. Now we actually have the technology to do that. So given that, given the mountain of evidence that the mind is the brain, do near-death experiences provide such compelling evidence that there is mental activity outside of brain activity that we need to reject the mountain of neuroscientific evidence that's growing every day that tells us that the mind, in fact, is the brain? Well, I think the answer there is, is definitely no as well. People have had very unusual experiences. We don't doubt that they have had you know, life-altering, unusual experiences. Whenever your brain is constructing reality in a different way that you're not used to, that's going to be a very weird, profound experience. We no doubt about that. But it's demonstrably something happening in the brain. What we don't have are any documented cases of mental activity occurring when there could not be brain activity. Now, proponents will often say that, well, but the person remembers being, you know, in the emergency room, or they remember, they have these memories that were forming while their brain wasn't functioning, but we don't know that. They easily could be forming their memories when they're coming out of their whatever state, whatever coma that they were in. Every element 
of a near-death experiment, experiment, uh, experience can be duplicated, can be replicated with drugs, with anoxia, with lack of blood flow, by turning off circuits in the brain. Every single component is a brain experience that we could now reproduce, and we are zeroing in on the exact circuits in the brain which reproduce them. That's why you must vote against this proposition. Thank you. Thank you, Stephen Novella. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is death is not final. Now we move on to round two. Round two is where the debaters address one another and take questions from me and from you in the live audience. Our motion is this, death is not final. We have two teams of two arguing for and against this motion. We have Eben Alexander and Raymond Moody who have made a presentation based uh, very significantly on the personal experience of Eben Alexander. Uh, It's an argument based on one very, very compelling anecdote of a guy who's been there. He has seen it and he is not a gullible guy and ever was. He was trained as a scientist. He comes back saying that consciousness is something that is a lot bigger than the brain, that what he experienced could not uh, be explained by brain activity, uh, especially given the illness and the state of illness he was in when his brain was functionally non-functioning. They're also arguing that science, no, science cannot prove that the afterlife exists, but that through the use of reason and logic, we can get to that conclusion. The team arguing against the motion, Sean Carroll and Stephen Novella, uh, they agree with their opponents that science cannot prove that there is an afterlife, but they also say that science can more or less tell us that that the existence of an afterlife would not fit in with everything else that we know about how the way the world works, that there are all sorts of other possible biological explanations for the experiences that people come back and describe, and that psychologically we're wired to want to believe in the story of an afterlife and that that wiring influences the kinds of accounts that come back. But I, I want to, you know, we, we're going to talk about the power of anecdote, the validity of anecdote. We're also going to talk a little bit about brain function and the state of brain function. And I want to start with that point. And Eben, we, we, this is not, this debate is not Eben Alexander on trial. Uh, we agree with that. But you, you're the one with the experience. You've had I think uh, your partner, Ray Moody, did you have a near-death experience? No, okay. Uh, I didn't either, Um, (laughs) just for the record. Evan, uh, your your opponents are arguing that what you said you experienced can be explained by what we already know about the brain. As they put it, you had a real experience about something that was not real. And I think we all understand the logic of what they're saying. That could be the case. Could it not be the case? I think the important thing to point out is uh, I get asked to give a lot of talks at medical groups, uh, neurosurgical and other surgical groups, physician groups, um, because they realize the power of the medical situation. And I think this is what certainly grabbed me and challenged me within weeks after my uh, coma as as my knowing a brain-mind consciousness came back, and I started to review the records to reveal just how sick I was. Initially, I looked at all kinds of possibilities. Could it have happened early, going in? Could it have happened coming out? Was there some way that, that other structures in the brain or some part of the brain was participating in generating this very long, elaborate uh, uh, journey? And yet, that's where I kept running into trouble with it. Okay, um, let's, let's bring it over to Sean Carroll then, where, where your, opponent's, uh, your opponent, Eben Alexander, is saying that what he experienced can only be explained as a, as a real experience. Well, I think that uh, Stephen can talk about the specifics that might have been going on in the brain, but my emphasis is on we are weighing two different comprehensive pictures here. We have a personal testimony from someone who says he experienced something and it's very real and says that 
Well, we can't imagine, even as a neurosurgeon, he just doesn't know what could possibly have been going on in his brain that would make that happen. Therefore, let's throw out all of the laws of physics. And I think that that is not nearly enough standard right of evidence. There. Stop right there. Evan, is that true? No, that's not at all true. In fact, uh, they still teach quantum mechanics, right? Uh, they do. Good. Uh, because <laughs> I could teach I, it right now. I think now. it's important to point out, from my point of view, what drove the founding fathers of that field into mysticism was the fact that getting at the very uh, depths of trying to understand subatomic reality, they were... Uh, led to believe that consciousness, the observing mind, actually played a role in the unfolding of what was being observed. And I think that that mystery, to my uh, satisfaction, has not really been solved in a way that says that the concerns of people like uh, de Broglie and uh, Dirac, Einstein, uh, Bohr, and others, um, that they were trying to understand how consciousness influenced So so is your point... For those of us who are just not as well steeped in the conversation that's already happening here, um, <laughs> is your point that there is a kind of reality that you are saying is beyond science, the tools of science that we know now? In my view, this is all about how understanding the, tr- the true nature of consciousness, uh, soul and spirit, has a lot to do with helping to take physics to the next level in terms of understanding okay, the thanks. nature Sean, of quantum mechanics. The thing about Einstein, Bohr, de Broglie, etc., the founders of quantum mechanics, is that they're all dead, and they've been dead for many decades. And we know what's going on much better now than we did back then. We know how the laws of quantum mechanics help explain how electrons move in the brain, and there's take, take, nothing Take 15 seconds and tell us why quantum mechanics has been brought up by your opponent, why that has relevance here. Well, it's, I can only quote uh, MIT physicist Scott Aronson, who says, as far as he can tell... Quantum mechanics is confusing, and consciousness is confusing, so maybe they're the same. Raymond Moody, let's bring you into the conversation. Um, You know, really, um, I think in reality what we're dealing with here is not a scientifically decidable issue, but a philosophical question. And what it's called is the mind-body problem, probably first articulated in the West by Pythagoras, but there have been many, many different theories of it. The one that's current in the neurosciences is called epiphenomenalism, which says, in effect, that there is no independent reality to what we experience as consciousness, but it's a secondary byproduct of the primary reality, which is the brain and the electrochemical events going on in the brain. In my opinion, that's a philosophical statement, really. And my answer is, I don't know. I think the mind-body problem is still unresolved. All right, let's go to your uh, opponent, um, Stephen uh, Novello, who specializes in whether whether the mind is in the brain or not. I I think, you know, Dr. Alexander said that the experience that he remembers, again, I don't doubt he has a memory of a profound experience, could not have occurred as he, as he was coming out of his, of his coma, but he has, you have no basis for that statement, I don't think, that you, you have no sense of time. Your brain also constructs your sense of time. When you were at your worst, there wasn't the kind of fun, functional monitoring that we would have needed to know that your brain was not functioning at all. You weren't, you weren't getting an fMRI, a PET scan, or an EEG, as far as I could see, any, anything that you've written or said about it that would have documented zero brain activity, and even still... 
those are the memories that you have now were not necessarily formed when you were at your deepest part of the coma. They could have been forming in the hours and days when you were coming out of the coma. At different points in time, different parts of your brain were working or not working, and you were constructing reality in a very bizarre way, in, in ways that we can reproduce with drugs and hypotension, you know, with electromagnetic stimulation of different parts of your brain. Is, is that valid, that the entire near-death experience, as described by thousands of people, can be recreated by drugs and putting electricity no, across the brain? No, I would say that's, that's uh, not true at all. There are tremendous examples of people encountering souls of departed loved ones, learning information that they couldn't possibly learn in any other way. You had said uh, earlier that there were no cases of any of these memories being generated when the brain was out, and yet there are examples of that, where the brain, people under uh, deep anesthesia with complete circulatory arrest, things like that, where they do have some astonishing stories of getting information that it doesn't seem to be any other way that they could have gotten it. So those cases are out there. But those cases are not, you know, controlled or documented. So in other words, that we don't know that they couldn't have gotten that information any other way. A lot of those cases, I've read them, they're like cold readings. There are, in fact, attempts at putting controls in place, like putting uh, playing cards on top of a shelf that could only be viewed if you were actually floating above the ceiling. To the extent that those have been done, no one has been able to demonstrate any information that could only have been obtained while they were extracorporeal, floating above their body. And by the way, we could make you float above your body. Um, Raymond Moody? I can go back to Evan. Because I, I actually want to move on to a different, a different point that was made, and that was, Sean Carroll, you were making the point that we're, we're wired to want this to be true. We're wired to want to, to shape strange events into narratives and into narratives that we particularly like. And my response to that is maybe that's true, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's what happened over here. And there's a little bit of an argumentum ad hominem thing about it, is you're not a reliable reporter because you just want that to be true. And I like, sort of like to, it's a little bit insulting almost to say um, you can't be trusted because you want everything to be happy. I, I hope it's not insulting. It's certainly not ad hominem because the message is that nobody can be trusted. I think that that is part of what science has taught us, that if someone makes an extraordinary claim, the very first questions we should be asking ourselves are, number one, is there a different, simpler, alternative explanation? And number two, how would we know if our purported explanation were false? How would we disprove it? And I think that, you know, when you look at the bigger picture of how the universe works, how the laws of physics work, there's just an enormous presumption against the idea that somehow through ways that there are no equations, no experiments, or no direct evidence to tell us, the information in our brains persists after we die and is there forever in talking to other people who died. So uh, there's plenty of things that I would like to be true, and I have been tricked into believing they're true, so I know that I should be especially skeptical about them. All right, Raymond Moody, you're, you're, you're the philosopher on the panel. So, so take on what Sean Carroll has just, just said from the philosophical point of view. What I would say about what Sean says is... Yes, I love physics, too. I was an astronomer from the age of seven and so on, and I accept there's a physical realm and so on. I'm talking about something entirely different. There's no inconceivability in thinking that everything that we know is true, and yet there is a higher dimension or a higher domain of existence that's sort of uh, in which this one is included. 
I want to remind you we are in the question and answer section of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, arguing it out over this motion, death is not final. I want to go to audience questions, and while you're raising hands, I just want to ask very, very quickly for Eben Alexander, do we know that the brain can manufacture those experiences? I would say the brain does not create consciousness. That is something a lot of scientists, those interested in neuroscience, are far along that pathway now. It's called the hard problem of consciousness. In fact, no neuroscientist on earth can give the first sentence to explain the mechanism by which the physical brain creates consciousness. We don't have to know how the brain creates consciousness in order to know that it creates consciousness. That it creates consciousness, we absolutely know. Just like we don't have to know how the Earth generates gravity to know that it generates gravity. There's no question we have gravity, even though we haven't untangled the deepest understanding of every possible thing. So yes, we we don't know exactly how the brain creates consciousness, but not knowing the mechanism is not the same thing as saying it's not possible or it's impossible or we need a non-physical mechanism. Given that point, but is is he accurate that we don't know the mechanism by which the brain gives rise to consciousness? Well, it's not a black or white thing. We have some knowledge. We don't have complete knowledge about it. It's like saying, do we understand, do we understand everything about genetics? No, but we know that DNA is the molecule of inheritance. Not That's not questionable. Sentence. Give the first sentence of how you would trace from the physical brain that it gives rise to consciousness. Just Let's go to some audience sentence. questions right down front here. Hi, my name is Arthur Kramer. Uh, my question is to the panel arguing for the motion. If a person was to take a strong hallucinogen, like say um, LSD, and they were to have a very distorted experience, uh, hallucinations, would you accept their version of reality or would you just merely dismiss it as them having uh, an experience because of... That was a perfectly formed question. (laughs) And very relevant. Which of you would like to take it? Uh, Raymond Moody. Um, You know, I think William James was kind of right about that, that whatever experience one has, one can say that by definition almost there's some correlated state of the central nervous system. Um, The question of reality is an entirely different question. Can I imagine that maybe by taking some substance someone could gain access to some other kind of reality? Yes, I can imagine that. Ma'am. Okay, hi, my name is Eleanor, and um, I have a question for this side as well. I did read both of your books, by the way, which are super interesting, but it left me with the question, which hasn't been answered yet, is, so why wouldn't everyone that experiences a death experience or a near-death experience have one of these experiences. Right. It's why? about one out of ten or one out of eight, something right. like that. Why who comes more back? people have... And why is there no mention of hell? It's all about heaven, which could be a good thing, but... <laughs> I think this side has an answer to that question. <laughs> Evan Alexander, would you like to take that? Well, I, I think... Um, That, to me, is a very interesting question. The number out there is roughly 15%, 20% of people who have a medical situation that might lead to a near-death experience. About 15 to 20% seem to report them. That's a historical figure that I think is probably low because it comes from an era when we weren't asking people to volunteer that kind of information. I think the actual number uh, is probably higher. Uh, If I had just come back from my earthworm eye view 
uh, you know, that very prolonged initial phase, uh, I would have had a hellish NDE. Uh, it turns out that hellish NDEs are probably what? Just remind or, people, NDE stands for near-death near death experience. experience. Uh, and the hellish ones are, are quite uh, rare by comparison, 3 or 4%. My own feeling is that that is because they're incomplete. I think the other side should get a crack at this question of why it's only one out of eight or one out of ten people who yeah, have these I mean, experiences. It's, Stephen Novella. perfectly compatible with the neuroscientific hypothesis of these experiences. It depends on what parts of your brain are working and not working at any given moment. What's the mechanism of your being in a coma or unconscious? Was it traumatic? Was it lack of oxygen? We could put pilots in a centrifuge, spin them up until they pass out. A lot of them have near-death experiences, too. They're not near death, but we're depriving their brain of blood flow. Uh, and you know, with similar numbers, very you know, profound memorable, vivid experiences. So it just depends on the particulars of what parts of the brain are working or not working. Ma'am. Uh, my name is Jane, and my question is for the opposing side. We have energy while we're alive. Where does our energy go when we die? It doesn't go away. It's just in your atoms. They're just not continuing to live. It's exactly the same place the flame goes when you put out the candle. Um, does the other side want <laughs> well, to take somewhere. on the candle argument or... I would say it's more a question of the information, you know, than the energy. It's not a conservation issue around energy. People often use that one to argue against uh, soul being able to influence uh, the material world. Uh, I would say it's much more a question of, of the information. For example, a, a, a very renowned skeptic and scientist, Carl Sagan, admitted that past life memories in children, the evidence for that is overwhelming. Oh, that's not true. And Come on, Carl Sagan, is, please. He said that in his book, in his book, The Demon Haunted World, on page 302. He says exactly that. I've read that book a hundred times. Carl Sagan did not believe in past lives. He did not believe in anything paranormal or supernatural. That is just not true. Impasse on Carl Sagan. Question. Down front. What is the one thing that you would need to know that would make you believe them even a little bit? So I just I mean, want to cl clarify that as a question to the side arguing against the motion. Could you be convinced? Yeah, I think that, you know, the idea that uh, we could be convinced of an, another realm in addition to the natural world is obviously yes. There's a million pieces of evidence that would help convince me. None of, I mean, if, this, if there's a ghost in the room that could lift up that glass right now, then I would be convinced. For those listening on the radio, the glass is not moving. And it, it never moves when you do this. And we live in a world that looks exactly like there's only the natural but world. But wouldn't you really kind of like those guys to be right? Wouldn't it be great? Yes and no. I think that there's obviously advantages. Yeah. I, I don't want to die. <laughs> I want to live after I die. Maybe not for infinity years, but for a few hundred thousand years. I could amuse myself. <laughs> Sadly, uh, as a very wise philosopher once said, you can't always get what you want. And that concludes round two of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where our motion is, death is not final. On to round three, closing statements by each debater in turn. Our motion is, death is not final, and here... To summarize his position supporting the motion that death is not final, Eben Alexander, an academic neurosurgeon and author of the best-selling book, Proof of Heaven. Well, I, I would like to um, go back to what Sean had said about how consciousness is very confusing to us, as is quantum mechanics. And I would put out there, I think they're related. 
There's a reason why they're both so confusing. And that's, you, you can chuckle, but in fact, that's what drove brilliant people like Einstein and others into mysticism. And in fact, I would say that that mystery has only gotten much deeper over time. We have not answered that at all. Uh, in support of my claim earlier about brain damage allowing enhanced uh, function, I point out two very common Uh, examples in clinical practice, acquired savant syndromes in which stroke, brain uh, trauma, autism can allow superhuman mental function, something that's often seen that certainly has no explanation from the brain makes mind model, and also terminal lucidity uh, in which demented elderly patients often have periods of great clarity, uh, especially around the time that they are encountering souls of departed loved ones that are there to ask escort them over. And I would say that these uh, very commonly uh, observed phenomena really uh, demand a much deeper model of consciousness than we get out of the materialist models. Uh, point out that Dr. Wilder Penfield wrote a book in 1975, The, the uh, Conscious Mind. He probably still holds the record for having stimulated uh, the uh, brain and awake patients more than any other neurosurgeon, and never once did he duplicate any kind of situation of free will. He concluded very strongly that the mind consciousness is not created in the physical brain. And uh, I think it's important to point out that the pure materialism fails at the hard problem of consciousness and at the enigma of quantum mechanics, that the brain actually confines and limits consciousness, uh, that science acknowledging consciousness, soul, and the spirit becomes much stronger than the overly simplistic science of reductive materialism. Death of the physical brain and body is not final. Thank you. Thank you, Edmund Alexander. And that is our motion, Death is Not Final. And here to argue against the motion, Stephen Novella. He's a neurologist at Yale School of Medicine and founder of Science-Based Medicine. So up until a couple hundred years ago, um, every culture in the world believed that there was a life energy. They knew intuitively, they sensed that there was something fundamentally different about living things from non-living things. And they hypothesized that there must be some energy, some elan vital, spiritus, chi, whatever you call it, that fundamentally makes living things different than non-living things. But over the next you know, 100, 150 years, basically the 19th into the 20th century, we discovered biochemistry and genetics and developmental biology and all different principles of biology until essentially there was nothing left for the life force to do. We had explained everything that living organisms had do, and we explored the the blurry line between living and non-living, and we realized that there's no fundamental difference there. It's just as you get increased complexity, at some point you cross this fuzzy line and you're doing a process that we call life. Well, we're kind of going through the same process, or maybe a little bit delayed with consciousness, we, we understand that the brain causes consciousness. We certainly don't understand a lot about how it is produced exactly. But we're making progress. Our research paradigms are working quite well, thank you. And we're making lots of progress. It's just as irrational, if you will, to hypothesize that there is some magical energy or some non-corporeal thing, stuff, that is consciousness, as it was 200 years ago to say that, well, because we can't explain life, then we need a life force. We don't need a brain force, a mind force, any more than we needed a life force 200 years ago. 
The fact is that the neuroscientific community is progressing relentlessly with the, with the paradigm that is materialist, reductionist. We're looking for neuroanatomical correlates of everything that the mind does, and that research program is very, very successful. And is how well an idea advances in science is more telling about how valuable it is, how true it is, than what our current state of knowledge is. Our current state of knowledge is always going to be incomplete. It doesn't mean that our ideas are wrong or are weak. That's why you have to vote against this proposition. Thank you, Stephen Novella. And the proposition is, death is not final. And here to summarize his uh, position in support of the motion that death is not final, Raymond Moody. He's a medical doctor and author of the book Life After Life, in which he coined the term near-death experience. Raymond Moody. Uh, first of all, I want to say that to me, to this day, the notion of life after death is very counterintuitive. I think as a non-religious person, I had no background in that. It never occurred to me as a young astronomy uh, buff that there might be something beyond this. I've been through a process now of 40-plus years that finally drove me into this situation where I'm sort of forced to say, almost against my will, that death is not final. There is a life after death. Basically, what happened to me was that hearing thousands of people with near-death experiences, hundreds of people with shared death experiences who had the identical experience we call a near-death experience, except they weren't ill or injured. They were simply there at the bedside of someone else who died. And uh, I have seen joint transcendent experiences where, for example, a physician and a critically ill patient would have some sort of joint transcendent experience at the same time. That leads me to be forced almost into a position to say that I trust these people's judgment. It seems to me that they've been somewhere where I haven't been, and I can begin to put a little picture together of, um, of what they're talking about. So for that reason, I would say I'm on board. I think there is life after death. So vote, vote, vote for the afterlife. Thank you, Raymond Moody. Our motion is death is not final, and here to summarize his position against the motion, Sean Carroll. He's a theoretical physicist at the California Institute of Technology and author of The Particle at the End of the Universe. When I was about six years old, I had uh, an emotional, formative experience that apparently many other people share similar things. I was in bed, you know, going to sleep, sort of thinking about the day and so forth, and I started crying. I was just bawling uncontrollably, so much so that my mom heard me from you know, her bedroom and came running in and said, what is wrong? And I said, uh, someday our grandmom is going to die. And someday you're going to die. And someday I'm going to die. We're all going to die. And you know, she had to explain, well, yes, uh, and so forth. And she had her own version of the story. And the reason I'm telling the story is because even as convinced as I am that death is final, I have absolutely no desire to belittle the people in the room who disagree, who feel the other way. This is an incredibly important central issue to our lives. 
I personally am convinced by the overwhelming scientific evidence from physics, from neuroscience, etc., that there is one world, the natural world, biology is a process that can end, and death is and then final. And to me, that fact, the finitude of our lives, gives enormous poignancy and importance to the finite number of years that we have here on Earth. Our lives here are not dress rehearsals. This is the act. This is the one performance that we get. That does not remove meaning or value from the lives we're leading now. It gives. It forces us to give meaning to everything we do because we only have a finite number of things to do. If evidence came in on the other side, I would change my mind quickly as the evidence was good enough. But I think that we're past the point where it's a scientifically interesting question. I think that we know enough to conclude that death is final, and personally, I think that that is okay. Thank you. Thank you, Sean Carroll. And that concludes closing statements. Uh, you know, Sean Carroll just made the point in his closing statement very, very brilliantly about this is not a, a debate that in any way was meant to disrespect anybody, and in fact, that would go very much against the spirit of Intelligence Squared, which, whose goal is to raise the level of public discourse. And what I heard, not only from Sean Carroll, but for all four of these debaters, were four people who disagreed vehemently on something very personal, meaningful, and metaphysical, and yet they did it in a respectful way, and I have to really give them a round of applause for the way they did that. So I have the results all in. Remember, we had you vote twice on this motion. Death is not final. Once before the debate and once again after the debate, and the team whose numbers have changed the most will be declared our winner. Here are the results. In the first vote, death is not final. 37% agreed with that. 31% disagreed with that. 32% were undecided. Those are the first results. Now, the second the second vote, remember, the team whose numbers have changed the most will be the winner. In the second vote, the team arguing for the motion, their second vote was 42%. They went from 37% to 42%. They picked up five percentage points. The team against the motion. Now, five percentage points is the number to beat. The team against the motion, they went for, their first vote was 31%. Their second vote was 46%. That's up 15%. The team arguing against the motion, death is not final has won this debate. That debate was held over a year ago, back in May of 2014. So as the costumes come out this holiday weekend, we wish you all a happy Halloween. You can listen to the full unedited version of this debate on the Intelligence Squared U.S. app, which is available in the iTunes stores and on Google Play or on our website at intelligencesquaredus.org. You can vote there, watch past debates, stream live debates, and ask me, John Donvan, your questions all through the app. And this November, we're going to be on the road with two debates. On November 2nd, we will be in Washington, D.C., debating this motion, college students should be allowed to use smart drugs. Then again, we'll be in Chicago, November 10th, debating the motion, U.S. prosecutors have too much power. You can find out more and purchase tickets at iq2us.org, where you can also subscribe to our newsletter for debate updates. And if you have a debate idea, send us an email or stop by our Facebook page, facebook.com forward slash IQ2US. Thank you for listening, and remember to think twice.